The Guardian. So it's the final day of the first block of the Sydney Siege Inquest. I'm here again with my colleague, Michael Safi. What were your thoughts on today? That's right, Monica. It's the end of, of the beginning, you might say, um, and not a moment too soon because I think we've heard basically, look, I'll say we've heard, you know, everything we want to about man, Heron Monas, but also I think we've actually heard very little of, of substance about the man. I have to say, after eight or nine days of, of hearings focusing on seemingly every uh, phase of his life, I, I don't think we're any closer to learning about, you know, what this man's motivations were for um, holding up the, the Lint Cafe last December. So today was about Monis' mates. Is that a way to summarise it? Well, look, m- mates may be stretching it a little. Perhaps they're the closest to mates that um, Monis had. I mean, some of the people who uh, were in the witness box today uh, literally spoke to the man for about 10 minutes, you know, five <laughs> years ago. Um, oh, dear. But it was enough to get them get them a Guernsey in the, um, the Sydney Siege inquest. Um, one of them was a... He was actually an Iraqi uh, refugee who we can't name because of a non-publication order, but we can tell you... Uh, what he said, which was that um, he was in the Villawood Detention Centre in 2010 when a delegation uh, from churches and mosques showed up with gifts and food and, and tried to kind of raise the morale of the asylum seekers in Villawood. Um, this gentleman spent, uh, I, th- I think, 16 months in Villawood and then three months before that on Christmas Island. So, um, uh, he, nonetheless, he was uh, addressed by a man, Haron Monas, who was in his full clerical garb, including the hat and the robes, and one of the things he said to him was that um, basically you should uh, just be patient inside. He said, don't make trouble. I think you'll get your visa as soon as possible. And they literally had one meeting. They met once. They met once. They didn't even speak one-on-one. Um, <laughs> you know, this is, and again, this underscores the point that this was a man who who lived an incredibly isolated existence. Um, I think the closest thing we got to uh, uh, a friend today was a gentleman called Anthony uh, Hancock, who was um, Monus's hairdresser or, or barber uh, for kind of three or four years. Um, and what he would do is he would shave Monus's head with a razor twice uh, twice a week. Um, and he said that, you know, for the first six months that, that he was working on Monus, he never really said anything. Um, but then afterwards, he began to open up a little bit and he began to, uh, you know, talk about um, his life and talk about uh, the fact that he had a fiance. Interestingly, um, Hancock said that the trigger for Monis suddenly opening up was that um, there was a woman in this barbershop and one day Monis asked, asked um, Mr. Hancock, you know, who's this woman? And Hancock replies saying, oh, it's, it's my wife. And he says, from that moment on, he just seemed to be a lot more friendly and open. So, I'm not sure if there's sort of... Knowing that the barber was married... I guess. I mean, your guess here, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it is kind of incredible that in terms of trying to find witnesses, they're they're pretty much clutching at straws. If if they're finding a man who's only spoken to him for you know ten minutes, yeah. and 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 his barber. Yeah, yeah. We're really. I mean, this is and this is this. I mean, they have the power to compel people to appear. This is a powerful body that that we're kind of that this inquest is being conducted by, and. Yes, you know, we're not really getting kind of, not really cutting close to the bone of who this guy was. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we heard today was this guy, Hancock, uh, went to Monis's, um Burwood apartment where he would conduct his spiritual consultation. You know, we've heard in the past that he ran this clairvoyant business for eight years and it was basically a guise to sexually assault women, albeit an incredibly profitable one, drawing in sometimes um, $125,000 a year or more. Uh, he said that it was... Um, you know, that, that when he walked in, there was a camera on a tripod and then there was a bank of three or four cameras also set up in the room. And he asked 
Monas, you know, why, you know, why do you have all these cameras here? And he replied, you know, I film many of the sessions. Um, you know, he does white magic and spells, but he noted only good magic and white magic. Hmm. And th- that's, um, that's what he films. I also noticed, uh, I wasn't there today, but I was reading your blog. And um, they also talked to a former flatmate who I, the detail that struck me was the fact that he wasn't allowed to bring any friends over, which, yeah. you know, it, you know, that's a normal thing to kind of have friends who you might want to invite over. But it was never an issue for Monas because he didn't have any friends that's, that he ever wanted right. to it's invite It's not a over. huge surprise, but Monas, kind of a crappy housemate. Um, he had a rule that if someone knocks on the door, you're not allowed to open it. Um, his room was locked all the time. He would always be in it. Um, even when he was in it alone, he would sort of lock the door to make sure no one could barge in on him. Um, and yeah, as you say, he, he asked that no friends were allowed to be um, brought over. And I think it kind of plays into this thing that we, we keep hearing, which is that, um, you know, he was completely paranoid that he was being tracked by Iranian intelligence that, you know, I, I've actually, I've read the kind of police file on Monas and one of the things he claimed was that he had been flown um, to Virginia by the CIA where he met, you know, senior US government officials before he ever came out to Australia. So in his mind, at least, he was at the centre of this kind of international network of spying intrigue. And mm. so in his flat in Auburn, he had to be extremely careful or else, you know, and it, his it, past would catch up with him. It does sound... I mean, he sounds so paranoid and I think the ironic thing is that at the same time we have accusations flying that how come the government didn't take this man seriously? How come he wasn't um, being watched? And it's it's quite yeah. ironic and that he had this kind of paranoia that he was being watched yeah, all the time. Yeah, and look, it's it, that sort of segues nicely into um, some other testimony that we heard today from uh, the cousin of uh, Monis's partner when he was killed last December. Um, and she said that, you know, she, we, uh, again, I can't name her because of a non-publication order, but she recalled what it was like when um, Monis was introduced to her family and her family were not, were not Muslim, they were, were, um, they were, they were sort of Christian. Um, and she said it was awkward because, um, you know, he was very difficult to talk to. He would only, you know, she re- recounted this conversation where she said, oh, well, you know, what do you do for work? He goes, I'm an accountant. Well, where? Oh, just for different people. You know, do you have a driver's license? Oh, I do, but I can't bring it. I mean, this this was a guy who, you know, resisted any attempt for for the, the family of his partner to learn anything about him. Um, and you know, most interestingly, he refused to have any photographs of himself taken. Um, he would turn up to family events where there'd be a lot of cameras around, um, with a baseball cap kind of pulled over his face. Um, and the person who testified today said that one day she sort of snapped and just picked up a camera, and took a photo of him. And her cousin walked over. Um, and grabbed the camera and deleted the photo. And she told the inquest, you know, that convinced us he was definitely hiding something. So after this lunch or after this family event, um, this woman's sister called the National Security Hotline um, and says that she was advised that, you know, he wasn't a threat, you know, there's nothing really they could do. Um, then she, that they, they called the Department of Immigration suspecting he may be in, in Australia illegally. Um, you know, that they basically had this sense that there was something off with this guy and they just couldn't put their finger on what it was. So, Michael, I guess we started this podcast because these uh, the, the inquest can be a little bit dry sometimes, but it, it's really important. And sometimes we need to discuss exactly what we saw today, what it all meant. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've learned from this first section of the inquest. Yeah, look, I mean, my ideas are really in their, in their infancy and this is something I'll have to be writing about in the next few days. But I think my kind of, my sort of quick take on it is that um, I don't think we're any closer to figuring out, you know, what was the motive 
for, for Monus doing what he did. Um, you know, we've just heard, we've just seen so many different Manheron Monuses over the past two weeks. You know, we've seen um, a biker, we've seen a cleric, um, we've seen the kind of seemingly assimilated kind of Iranian-Australian. Um, but I think the sort of thread that kind of binds it all together is of a guy who is lost, who is looking for... Um, you know, a community in which he can fit into. Um, and, you know, we see how quickly he adopts sort of the um, the clothing and the kind of behaviour of a biker. Um, and within a few months, he's sort of turfed out of that group. You know, he's a guy who strikes everyone he meets as being kind of really odd. And I think I touched on this yesterday, but part of me wonders whether kind of, um, you know, some, the rise of Islamic State is almost the perfect cocktail for a man like Manharon Monas because it provides... Um, you know, it provides meaning, it provides uh, a, a sense of kind of purpose in life, gives him a chance to be a historical figure, which we know he, he thinks he certainly is. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, it led to what we saw last December, which was this, this siege of the Lint Cafe, um, you know, where he throws up this Islamic State flag. And it's interesting because one of his demands was um, an actual Islamic State flag. And you, again, you get the sense that this is this other group he's trying to join. And again, he fails. Again, he can't get his hands on this flag. And, you know, I think he must be, well, you know, wherever he is now, so, you know, feeling quite appalled that even now we sit there and say, ah, you know what, probably not a member of IS. Well, that's it for us. And signing off, it's the first time we've done a podcast like this. We'd really love to know what all of you thought of it. Feel free to head to our Facebook, to our Twitter, comment on um, the Guardian page and let us know what you think and whether you want to hear it again. Yeah, completely. Time. The idea is that this was kind of a different, better way to sort of consume what's been happening in this inquest. And if, if it's been successful, let us know. And most importantly of all, if you have enjoyed the podcast, um, go on iTunes and give us a fantastic review because we'd be uh, very appreciative. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio. 